thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study, the podcast where we read the Bible as a source of inspiration and strength to help you live into God's abundant vision for your life and for the world. Hi, and welcome to Liberation Bible Study podcast. This is Alex McNeil, your faithful host. I am so excited to be joined today by Reverend Cedric Harmon from Many Voices as our collaborative reader today. Before we begin, I'd love, Cedric, for you to introduce yourself, your pronouns, your work, and your identities that you bring as you read this text. Good morning, Alex. I am Reverend Cedric Harmon, Executive Director of Many Voices. Uh, Black Church Movement for Gay and Transgender Justice, based in Washington, D.C., but working throughout the United States and globally. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And my identities that I bring to this particular reading is I bring an experience of being raised in a Baptist church setting with a kind of sanctified experience added onto that, a person from a family of deep and profound faith that invited me as a child to always question the text and question the preaching moment. And so I come to this conversation with that, uh, the willingness and the freedom to question what this text has to say to us. And I am Alex McNeil, serving as Executive Director of More Light Presbyterians. And my pronouns are he and him. I bring to this text the experience of being a white transgender man raised in the South and the experience of profound transformation in my own identity of a kind of raising from the dead. And I bring to this text a a wonderment of the ways in which miracles operate in our own lives from a place of hopelessness. So today our theme is on hopelessness as we read a text that on the one hand has profound joy and profound despair. But I'd love to start by having you, Cedric, read the passage from John all the way through as we listen, thinking about the context of the story and what we know about the passage and where it sits within the Bible and beginning conversation there. John uh, 11, 1 to 44. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sister sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, After having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble, because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death. But they thought that he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, She went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead for days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone away. And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Cedric, thank you for reading. I'm curious, what came up for you in terms of the context and what is going on in this passage? So, Alex, as I've read this passage many times in preparation for our conversation, the passage reflects our lives in so many ways. It's filled with competing views. It's filled with danger and risk and threat and health challenges and devastation and blockages and the thirst for an alternative to all of that, a thirst for freedom and liberation. And we encounter in the story a loved one who is seriously ill. And then this imposition of life circumstances that hinders and halts the one receiving that news from responding as they would wish to. So Alex, you and I and our listeners likely know that dreaded call when you're told that someone you love is sick and the outcome doesn't look promising and you kind of freeze and you don't know what to do. And you know in that very moment that your heart sinks. This is a very relatable and very personal narrative and one that I'm actually very uh, attuned to even now as I have a loved one who is battling that dreaded illness, breast cancer. It moved me in that very kind of personal, relatable way. Something that came up for me as you were reading that I hadn't quite noticed before is this struggle that Jesus has in different moments of his ministry around who do you say that I am and the struggle to be seen as the kind of Messiah that he knows himself to be, that God has called him to be. Something that we focus in on in this text a lot is this moment of Jesus weeping. What really interests me is that he, he has this conversation with Martha as he's about to visit the tomb. Martha really lays it out there that this is who you are. I wonder around this moment of weeping, I think there's this interpretation of what that is. Lazarus must have meant a lot, but there's this profound depth to those tears that I think speaks to us in a very real way as if we sit with it. And in some ways, I think 
the tears may have been caused by being seen in a particular way by Martha and, and yet being unseen by so many around him who aren't getting it. So that part of the, the passage really struck me today. There's this expectation of Jesus that kind of stated and then the unspoken expectations. So you know, like Martha and Mary both have this moment where they say, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And there's this notion that even in the crowd that he had healed previously. So why wouldn't he have come quickly and stopped this man from dying? So Jesus in some ways is known as special because there's this kind of notoriety of being one of the special ones. And we as human beings tend to place particular attention and hopes upon the special ones, not realizing that each of us are special ones and we are all uniquely gifted and skilled and able to contribute to the moments that we find ourselves in. Our gifts are indeed diverse, but they are nonetheless gifts that are necessary for the moments of our common humanity, and they are really necessary for our survival. So it's Mm -hmm. interesting that even in this moment, as Jesus is struggling internally, I think, to some degree with identity, Jesus foreshadows for us and is a precursor for us to understand that we struggle also with our identity. Who are we to be in these moments? How do we show up? And what do we do when we don't show up the way that others expect us to show up or in the moment that they expect us to show up? How can we then be present, realizing that maybe we disappointed? And so perhaps Jesus in those tears, who is deeply disturbed, says the passage, internally disturbed and moved, perhaps there's a little bit of that struggle, like they had an expectation of me that I didn't fulfill. And should I fulfill that or should I not have? And yet I know that God's going to be glorified, quote unquote, in this moment, but I'm human and I wanted to be here and I couldn't. And the people don't quite understand that life shows up and you can't always show up the way you want. Yeah, there's so much in that, Cedric, around why weren't you here? You, you should have prevented Lazarus from even dying. That also echoes as a meta question around Jesus's own death. Could you become the Messiah without dying? Do you have to do that? Do you have to face that pain? I see it operating for Jesus as almost a test of enough. It's not enough for you to just show up. It's not enough for you to have healed all these people. If you didn't heal this one, then who are you? I know that's something that we individually struggle with too of wanting to show up for people and wanting to be there for people and always worrying i'm not enough what i'm doing is not enough and here you have the crowd really testing him it's like no it wasn't enough you could have done this there's something really profound in this passage that relates to suffering it both says suffering is not something god does to you but it's also something we as humans cannot escape from. Yes, it is the stuff of life in some way. There are are going to be the difficult moments. And as we started around hopelessness, there will be those moments when it feels as though this is too much for us to bear. I think in many ways at this moment, many are feeling that way. Like how much more of this, whatever the this is, must we endure? And will we ever be free of this? And will we ever find a way through it? I think that that's that's a curious part early on in the passage where Jesus launches into this narrative around daylight and nighttime. It's really fascinating. I'm taken by that part of the passage because Jesus says that there are hours of the day of daylight. And then in those moments, you don't stumble. But then in the nighttime, you stumble. In tragic and trying and troubling times, we are often left feeling uncertain and we are bumping around and not quite sure what we should do or how to respond. And that's a very human experience. And especially when there's the threat of risk or uncertainty, because this comes just as Jesus is thinking about going back to Judea. The disciples say, well, they're trying to kill you. Why would you want to go back there? (laughs) You're putting your life at risk here. And yet Jesus says, that in this moment of light and darkness, if you believe you can find your way, even though you're bumping around and stumbling over things and sometimes making mistakes, you can find your way through this. And I think that that's a very liberative way of looking at our uncertainty. Sure, I don't know exactly what I'm doing right now, but if I believe what I say I believe, I can get through it. 
Like a failure isn't the final moment. It's a failure that may reveal a new opportunity or new ways of being that will serve you in the future. And so it's a mm. curious little passage right in the middle of this story that I don't think we pay enough attention to. It's very human to bump around and be uncertain and unsure. You pointed out something to me when we talked a few days ago about this. When Jesus hears that Lazarus is ill, he waits two days. Immediately upon hearing this news, he says, this illness isn't fatal. To your point around, even stumbling around in the dark is still walking. <laughs> yes. I think we walk around too often in our work and in our lives, I know this is true for me, believing that illness is fatal. If I make a mistake, that's the end. I'm done. I'm not worthy as a leader or to be living out a calling that I have in my life. And there's something really liberative, as you say, around this illness isn't fatal. And I think Jesus is meaning that as a foreshadowing of his own death. My death isn't the end, which is hard to hear when so many of us only have 12 hours in our day. We only have 24 hours in our day that on the one hand, time is limited. We don't have all day or night to do what we're called to do. And sometimes illness is fatal and we do die. And sometimes we're called to walk back towards Judea, even if it's fatal to us. And Jesus says, this illness isn't fatal. What if we lived as if that were true, knowing even that our days are numbered? So I'm curious, when, you were, when you've read this and looked at this passage, have you noticed the way in which community is, is kind of woven throughout this passage? From the very beginning, when Mary and Martha realize that their brother is ill, they reach out to Jesus and send word. So there's community. The disciples are a very confused community. They don't quite know what the heck's going on with this, with this moment. Is, is Lazarus sleeping? Is What's going on? When Jesus finally goes, there has been this whole influx of other people that have come to surround Martha and Mary in this moment of grief. Community is very necessary. That often when we're going through really challenging times, we feel extraordinarily isolated. And in this passage, community actually shows up and yet community can't fix everything. Absolutely. Community's there not to raise Lazarus from the dead. They're there to bring snacks, to sit in grief, to mourn together. And I think what they're asking of Jesus to fix Lazarus, knowing that their powers are limited and not quite reconciled to maybe that's enough. Maybe that's what enough looks like. I know that one of the stumbling blocks for me in my work and activism is feeling that hopelessness that whatever I do is not enough to change an outcome. I know for a lot of people, there's almost a hesitancy to start on the road because they're like, oh, I'm just one person or I'm just one church. I'm just one community. So whatever we do is not going to fix things. One of the messages of this passage that I haven't noticed before because it's so focused on this moment of healing that almost overshadows the power of the community showing up is what can be transformed around hopelessness when we know we're not alone, even if we're going through something hard. Yes, that so resonates with me. Both you and I are very committed to pastoral care. And pastoral care actually in action is compassion and care and empathy. It is not pastoral fix. It's pastoral care. Yeah. And I know for those of us who are the helpers of the world, the show up with casserole of the world, I also in the issue an invitation in this to receive that same kind of community of support. Mary and Martha, what I love about what they did was they ran to tell people, we're hurting. Our brother is sick. We can't do this by ourselves. There's something so woven into our psyches that says, you have to go through this alone. You have to go face the night by yourself. I think there's something really beautiful about being the person to receive the casserole, not always the one to make it. What I noticed in this passage that was so interesting is in thinking about the roles of Mary and Martha. In other texts, there's a story of Mary and Martha where it's Martha being the one in the kitchen Mary's the one that goes out and greets Jesus and washes Jesus' feet. And meanwhile, Martha's in the kitchen whipping up all kinds of casseroles and baked goods and delicious bread. <laughs> and Martha gets a little 
salty about that. Like, why isn't anyone helping me? And Jesus says, Martha, get out of the dang kitchen and come out here and be with community. If these are the same two from that story, it's just interesting to reflect here about maybe Martha learned from that and said, oh, I know what to do now. Do we feel ready to move into the next step of this Lectio practice where we read the passage again and listen for how this text calls us to resistance? Where do you see this text calling us to resistance? So in the early instance, we notice that Jesus models for us that when others are in a place of panic, and despair, one can either enter into the despair with them, or one can focus and remain where they are and gather one's wits before responding out of that rushed despair. Jesus literally refused to drop everything and run to Bethany. Mm-hmm. How many times have we simply done the exact opposite, dropped everything and run to provide aid, and then we arrive and we don't really know what it is to do. We just rushed. And it is curious that often when reading this text, people are upset with Jesus, just like the people in the reading. Jesus should have just gone. And no, Jesus remained focused in the moment, received the news, and shared the news, but that's just as ill, and continued to do what was to be done in that moment. There is some power in living in the moment that you're in. And then you'll know exactly what to do when you arrive on the scene. And perhaps we can take some lesson from this to be still and know before rushing to do. Yes. And it struck me in hearing this passage again that Jesus waits two days. But by the time he got there, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four. Does that mean then, since it was just a two-mile trip, that Lazarus was already dead? Because I'm assuming he didn't just die and they shoved him in the tomb right away. There was a whole ceremony in the process. So even by his rushing, Lazarus had already died. There was no way in which further rushing would have helped Lazarus at all. That root feeling of why we must rush. I have to rush so I can fix it before something bad happens, before it gets worse. What it takes to be still and trust is something pretty profound. I don't know what Jesus had to do to get that still (laughs) in that moment. Did he meditate? What inspired him to stay two more days? But in my own work, that external pressure to hurry and do more is ever present. And for me, what it takes to find that quiet of, no, I need to stay focused on this, not that, is that place of trust that what I do in this moment is right for right now. And then what I do next will be right for that moment. The other thing that I see is that once Jesus takes this moment to kind of still Jesus himself, then there comes a moment when Jesus is ready to go. The decision to go is a decision to go into a really troubled, difficult, hard, and threatening place. So not Mm -hmm. only are his loved ones in the midst of grief, but there are people seeking to destroy him in the neighborhood. So you had best still yourself before walking into that kind of circumstance. The piece that called out to me in in this reading again, that I think it's a part of resistance, it says several times that Jesus was deeply disturbed. Sometimes I think people hear this call to being still and quiet and focused as a lack of emotion, that you don't care. And then when Jesus got there, he was able to take in the emotions of the, of the room, of the tomb, of the place, of the people, and feel in his body a resonance. There was a lot of disturbing things that he witnessed. I think resistance starts from that place of depth of emotion. Because what I also notice is whether correctly or not, whether it's the whole story or not, Jesus loved Lazarus and his family. What disturbed him the most is because he loved these people. It wasn't, I'm so mad that death happened. I'm so mad at these people trying to stone me. I'm so mad at X, Y, or Z. He loved these people. He loved this community. And that is where the disturbance came from. For me, what sustains me in long forms of resistance 
is that depth of love that causes me to feel deeply, but is ultimately the source of what keeps me showing up in difficult places. Another curious moment in the in the reading is just kind of almost a throwaway few sentences. Thomas or Didymus, after hearing about this decision of Jesus to go, says, let us go and die with him. Now, how powerful is that to be awakened so deeply within that you say, okay, let's go along with and join in the struggle. In this moment in our nation and in our world, there are people who are doing as Thomas does in this passage, who are saying, I'm willing to go to dangerous places to take on difficult situations and circumstances and resist and stand up and speak out. Thomas often gets a lot of bad rap, but in this moment, Thomas really steps up in a very profound way in this very short bit of writing or bit of the narrative and says, let's go and die with Jesus. Let's go and experience whatever it may be that we're going to encounter in this place with Jesus. Which is such a profound level and depth of understanding of the cost for Jesus in going into this space. When we invite marginalized people with layers of oppression to walk into a majority white, majority heterosexual, majority cisgender, whatever space, there's often a lack of recognition of that cost to walk into that place. And Thomas is modeling so beautifully that act of deep, deep solidarity and awareness that this is an emotional and troubling journey. Let us go and be disturbed too, perhaps even die, knowing that perhaps death isn't fatal, um, the lasting truth. You're so right, Cedric, that to be able to be with somebody in that is the deepest form of resistance and love and community that you can be in, especially if you're not the one at risk. Another place of risk is this, uh, again, that same little passage that still catches my attention around the 12 hours of, of light and the 12 hours of darkness. In some ways, I think that Jesus is calling us to be awakened to what we hold as true and as essential, mm. to wake up and believe, and really believe what we say we believe. Uh, mm. There's a wonderful phrase that is very well known, they won't. Let's be awake in this moment and be awake to who we are powerfully, what we really care about, what possibility is available to us, and that we have the ability working in community and with others in solidarity to make a difference. But that requires a level of being aware and awake because one can be so lulled into the darkness and so beaten by kicking your shin against the bed that you don't want to be awake, but being awake is what's required. And adding to that the gift of being awake, Jesus says later in the passage, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see God's glory. If you are awake, you will see the gift of this radiance that is ever present for you and for Lazarus. I know so often when we're passionate about what we're passionate about in terms of justice in the world, there's this interesting thing that can happen around, I believe everyone should have enough to eat, if that's one of your values. And yet falling into this scarcity mindset around that is almost antithetical to your values, believing what you believe is almost the hardest thing to actually hold on to it every moment, every hour, every woken hour of the day and not falling prey to the white supremacist or scarcity operating system that has been installed in us that reinforces the very thing we're, we're trying to work against or transform. So I noticed when you were reading the, uh, another phrase, after Martha has her encounter with Jesus, she goes back and says to Mary, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And Mary, even in her own grief and despair, dropped everything and quickly went to be with the teacher. Mary resisted the temptation to wallow in grief and despair, got up quickly and went to be with the teacher. And the people around presumed that Mary was going back to the tomb to cry, but Mary was going where she knew she could get 
resolve and strength and courage in the moment, she went to the teacher who had called for her. Yes, they assumed she was going to mourn at the tomb. And yet, when she gets to Jesus, she still brings her full vulnerability. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She's not hearing the call of the teacher and says, okay, well, everything's good. She still brings her questioning. And I think back to that very first part of your story that you shared, Cedric, around you grew up in a way that still invited you to question the text, still invited you to to wonder about how all of this could be. I think that's also true in our resistance work, that deep despair of why isn't this different already? Why isn't God's kingdom here on earth where no one is hungry? I think denying that part of ourselves, even as we show up ready to learn and and be transformed, it only lets the lessons go to the surface, not to the true depth of our course. Like we have to fully speak what is painful and what is hard about our own experience. And yet that willingness to drop and go is where the transformation actually happens. Something that I, I can't really reconcile in this text, but I think speaks to something around resistance, is after Jesus hears about Lazarus being ill and presumably going to die, he says, let's return to Judea. And the disciples say, the Jewish opposition wants to stone you, but you want to go back. And he says, yes. And then they get there. And many Jews had come to comfort Martha and Mary after their brother's death. Now, if both of those are true, are some of those the Jewish opposition that wants to stone Jesus? And what I hear in resistance work of that is I think we're in a moment where it is very hard to go into rooms where there are people who do not believe the same way that we do, who do not hold the same vision for the world that we do or maybe even actively working to stone people that we love. And yet Jesus goes into that room and he's not worried they're gonna stone him there. Maybe out in the square, y'all are acting a fool, but in this space, you're ready for me to, to come and be part of the morning crowd. So I hear for myself, I'll speak personally, a calling to navigate those two distinct spaces. I can go in and trust that despite diversity of beliefs or even work that in this space, we are united around a common thing, or in this space, I will show up and be vulnerable. We're in a moment where we want our spaces to be perfect all the time, and they're so imperfect, um, and to wait for the perfect space where everyone is united in belief is not where transformation is happening. In this moment where Jesus is surrounded by the crowd, and there are those that have reasonable suspicions about, okay, why is he even here now? In this moment, it's important for us to realize that, yes, in challenging times and in difficult times, a diversity of opinion will certainly exist. There will be those that are cheering for success, and there will be those that are saying, you're too late. Why even bother now? But Jesus internally is still disturbed and moved. So Jesus kind of tracks the he tracks the environment and realizes in the environment it's not a single chorus. There are some discordant tones surrounding me. And says, yet and still, what I know to be true is that in this moment, you're going to get a glimpse of glory. In this very uncertain space where some are doubting and some are believing, you're going to get a glimpse of glory. And then yeah. Jesus does this really fascinating thing, which I, I have, I'm going to take from this passage for the rest of my life. God, I know, I knew that you heard me. I knew it. I knew it, and I know it now. And in this moment, I am doing this for the others that they might see it. But in my knowing, I knew that you heard me. So perhaps when Jesus didn't go, and Jesus presumed that Lazarus had already died. Jesus prayed and meditated for a positive possibility when mm-hmm. Jesus did arrive. Because why would Jesus say, I knew that you heard me, if there had not been a moment of entering into the divine and communing with the divine about this situation? And so mm-hmm. we, in times of resistance, must get to the place when we are in that moment of meditation or stillness, 
and we're wrestling with what to do and we say, okay, I'm going to trust, I'm going to live on a trust. But then when you arrive on scene, you can still say, I knew that you, the divine, are with me and always with me and always hear me and are always seeking my good, even though it doesn't appear that way. I'm holding in faith that good will come some way, somehow. And this fuels our ability to fight through those very difficult times. So you can look at a person that doesn't agree with you and be still in that space of knowing we may not agree on the surface, but you too want life to work. You too want your children to be safe. There are some things around which we actually do agree even though we disagree on many, and we're working towards the same goal. Internally, we're going towards the same thing. I know this. In that moment where there are people who doubt and people who believe in that cacophony of understanding, Jesus says, I know that you're going to see a moment of God's glory. And so often in the work that you and I do around inclusion specifically for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, non-binary, intersex, allied, asexual people, and there's more I didn't even name. We teach people how to have conversations about what deeply matters to them about. God, I know that queer and transgender people, for example, are beloved. I know that deeply. And when you have conversations with someone who is not sure of that, or maybe has never believed that, We encourage folks having those hard conversations to believe that even if in that moment you may not see transformation in that person, that you can trust that God has planted a seed. God has planted a thought, maybe even the tiniest whisper that may echo 20 years down the line. The fruit may arrive, maybe not even in our lifetime, but we are called to plant those seeds to be the the sowers. And Jesus knows that here. The other thing that you're highlighting that moment of, God, you always hear me. I wonder if there was even, as Jesus was meditating in those two days about what to do, perhaps there was even some uncertainty. I think this is what I'm supposed to do. I think I need to wait. I'm going to keep sitting here because that's the message I'm getting. I'm not totally sure. But then he shows up and he's like, I knew it. My body knew it. My conversation with you, God, perhaps was not with words, but it was with a feeling. And now it is confirmed. That's really powerful for us who are often so unsure. But when we choose to listen to that deeper wisdom, that's beyond the anxiety, beyond the scarcity, beyond the busyness of go, 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 when the thing that we've been meditating or waiting for finally comes to fruition, when that conversation finally happens and the seed gets sowed, it's such confirmation of the gift of waiting. Cedric, should we move to our third piece? I, it, I feel like we're already in it, in, in, so. in the vision for liberation. I think we may be ready to move forward. Yeah. I think so, too. In this text, what vision for the work of liberation does this story of Lazarus offer? So this is, I think, the portion where, where many people often focus first as opposed to all of our previous conversations. It's the miraculous moment of Lazarus coming forth that people think, oh, well, there's there's the liberation piece. And in fact, there is liberation there. There is. There is, in fact, a setting free. But the setting free is not without a recognition that there, in fact, is a stone in front of the gravesite that, in fact, the community has placed there because the community Mm. has decided and been convinced Lazarus is dead, and the only thing left to do is to put Lazarus in a grave. And that's the end of it. So we need to recognize that liberation is not without a recognition of reality. The reality Mm. is there's there's a corpse, there's a stone, and there's a grave. And those are very real. And when Jesus comes with this transformative moment, Martha and Mary are very clear. If we take that stone away, the body is already in a a process of decay. This is not going to be pleasant. And Jesus says, but I told you, you're going to see glory. So move the stone. It's it's fascinating that they say, with all of their belief and confession of their belief, now you do know this is going to be a stinky situation. 
<laughs> and liberation and freedom is not always a pleasant bed of roses experience. There are stinky, difficult, challenging blockages in the way of liberation and freedom. Otherwise, we would not be seeking freedom so desperately. There are things in the way. And a fear of removing the stone. Who will we be if we actually remove the stone? If we broke down the wall between death and life, who would we be? If we sat with the dead, tomorrow is Ash Wednesday, today is Mardi Gras, speaking of liberation. The veil between a fullness of life, the abundance of life, to really living at your maximum, and death is right placed side by side. And what it takes to remove that stone is a community's willingness to remove the stone for themselves, not just for the one inside. We must sit with that thin place to be transformed, to be liberated. What really struck me in this passage around a vision for liberation also was the conversation Jesus has with Martha before she gets it, where he says, he's telling her, this amazing thing's about to happen. Your brother will rise again. And Martha says, well, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. I know that. It's so embedded in me. It's, it's almost like I don't think about it. You know, so she wanted to like limit the scope. And Jesus says, no, I, I'm the resurrection of life. This is right now. We're not waiting. This is right now. Whoever believes in me will live right now, even though they will die. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Death is not permanent. And then Martha responds and says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are Christ God's son, the one who is coming into the world. As she's saying this, I'm wondering, is that aha moment of recognition dawning upon her that, oh my gosh, the scope of this is so much bigger than even just my brother. And a vision for liberation that I see in that conversation is a recognition of how often what we feel like we're working for is just the changing of the law or the removal of a barrier, just one tomb, God. Just if one tomb could be shifted, that would be enough. This is a real invitation to think beyond those individual tombs, how the whole, not even, I don't even want to just say system. It's not just the system. It is that internal belief that leads to a transformation of who we are in the world and how we how the world shows up. The other part of this vision of liberation that happens as the story kind of comes to its enumerate is that the stone is removed, Lazarus is called forth, the community is externally witnessing this happen. Lazarus then comes out of the place of the tomb, but Lazarus is still bound and wrapped and tied. And so the transformation and liberation is both an external, we get it, but Lazarus still has to be freed because Lazarus inside that tomb is very much convinced of Lazarus's circumstance. That when one is freed, we understand that freedom and liberation does not exist in isolation. If one of us is not free, then none of us are truly free. Mm. And until Lazarus has those bindings taken off, the transformation isn't complete. The freeing mm. is for all of us. It is for those inside the tomb and for those outside the tomb. It is for the full community to have this experience of freedom and abundance. So as you were talking about, perhaps one single law or one single barrier. No, all of it has to be ripped away and glory to all that is holy and righteous. That freedom is very near. It was right in front of them. They didn't have to go far. It was right there before them. They didn't have to travel long distances. It was happening right here, right now, in this moment. Glory to all that is holy. It's near to us if we but go for it. It's right here. It is right in our own communities where we can start the work of liberation. You don't have to travel across 
time and space to seek out liberation. Liberation is already in you. I love that Jesus says at the end, untie him and let him go. Let him go. Let my people go. Be free. There's no expectation in that, that Lazarus, where are you going to go, Lazarus? Not back to the house, hopefully. You're going. (laughs) You're going to take a cruise around the world. Like, where are you going? And I think in our liberation work, one place I have to check within myself is, do I have an expectation of where the going goes? Mm -hmm. What happens afterwards? Am I limiting liberation by saying, well, this is liberation if it follows X, Y, and Z pattern. It has to look like something that I recognize already for it to be called liberation. We may not recognize ourselves post-liberation. No. Something that was so real for me as I was considering medical transition and, and hormones around coming out as transgender was I was so afraid that I wasn't going to recognize myself in the mirror, that I would transform into something beyond what I knew. And there was a physicality to that, but it was also a deep fear that in my liberation to be who I was called to be, I wouldn't know myself anymore. And I think that's something we all wrestle with. If we really let ourselves be free, would we even know who we are? Would our spouses know who we are? Would our families recognize us? I've really gotten um, obsessed with the new reboot of the show Queer Eye. Have you seen any of the new episodes? I haven't, which, I haven't watched them, but I've, I've been hearing about it. It's kind of fascinating. <laughs> it's a show about transforming some of the surface things, like a haircut or a new wardrobe, or maybe even the place where you live, your space. But it seeks transformation at the deepest levels, allowing men to love themselves in a way they've not been invited to potentially ever to see themselves as beautiful and divinely created. And some of the men struggle with, well, I'd love to wear a pattern in my shirt or a color of shirt, but what does that mean about who I am? I'd love to have a space that's a bit more comfortable. It's not messy. What does that say about me as a man? To me, what this show is inviting people into is a small glimpse of their own liberation from structures of masculinity, toxic masculinity that repress and constrict and bind in a tomb. Yes. So I I take from this conversation about this passage that is a very rich passage, richer than I think many of us have ever ever considered before. I take from this one, one thought and then a second thought. So the first thought is this notion of freedom, that when one experiences freedom, What you're talking about, Alex, is freedom to be very much like the divine who says, I am that I am, I will be what I will be. That's not a definitive set or fixed reality. It is endless possibility. I will be what I will be. I am what I am. I will be what I will be. To be truly free means free beyond limitations. Liberation is, in fact, the lifting of the limits, taking off the shackles and the bindings. It's freedom of thought. It's freedom of behavior. It's release from expectation. It is being free. And Mm. in freedom, you're free to simply just explore and be whatever that may look like, however that may be, whatever that being is, that is freedom. And so freedom is really larger and more expansive than we can conceive of, because if you're free, there aren't the limits that have been enforced upon us any longer. So that's the first thing, a vision of freedom and liberation that is truly expansive without these limits and these bindings. It's release. The other thing that I take from this is that we are oriented to love. If I've never been convinced before, I am truly convinced, having read this passage and entered into this conversation with you today, we are oriented to love. If we accept that that is true, love also is without boundaries. We are oriented to being boundless expressions of love 
which God is love and is boundless and endless and without limits. We are created in that same image so that we would be free enough to experience and express that without limitation. And I add to that, once you've experienced that boundless love, that boundless freedom for yourself, how can you keep it to yourself? How can you want it only for you or for your identity group or for your family? It breaks the door down to work for that kind of freedom for all bodies, for all people, and to see the tombs that we have constructed for so many people, the bindings we have put on so many people, to do and be part of a resistance movement, of a liberation movement from that deeply free place. One, when you show up that way, other people see it and it is transformative. It is miraculous. Two, it is a sustaining nourishment that even as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you know that you're free and nothing, nothing can separate that from you. No people, no laws. This is a thing God has put it within you and your call is to share it with others. Is there anything else you want to speak into this conversation? Anything you want to commit to taking forward with you from our conversation from the reading? So even though we began with recognizing uh, the realities of hopelessness, that so impacts all of us at some point and sometimes many points in our lives. I leave the conversation with a sense and a vision of liberation and freedom that is possible, that is at our doorstep, that is within our reach. And I hope that our listeners will also find in this passage, as we look at it afresh and anew, the possibility and the potential for such liberation and freedom for themselves and for all whom they love and all who love them, as we as a human family pursue that liberation together. To that I say, amen. Ashe and amen. Cedric, I always love talking with you, and I especially love engaging with sacred texts with you in whatever form they show up, whether it's Queer Eye or the Bible. Thank you for your work and your witness and the ways you taught me about showing up in a liberated way. Thank you, Alex, for inviting me to join you in this journey. It's been wonderful. Thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study. We are so glad you joined us, and I hope you found strength for your journey. If this episode got you fired up, be sure to check us out online or on Facebook at More Light Presbyterian, MLP.org. Peace be with you until we meet again. Bye.